Well, let's get started tonight as we uh, officially get underway with our Genesis series. Two weeks ago, uh, we watched an hour-long video. Uh, I heard from some of you, some that said that was deep. Uh, of course, with the listening guide and so forth I provided for you hope and explained some of the terminology and things, hopefully uh, that did help. Uh, if you have just come in tonight, uh, if you want to get one of the guides for tonight, okay, probably it would be best if you did not just sit here while I'm talking and go through it. I've, I've given you, even though it's abbreviated, I've given you a good bit. And so uh, you may just want to take that home and read over it some a little bit later. I mentioned two weeks ago, if, if you want to do more in-depth study and some good commentaries on the book of Genesis, uh, this is regarded as one of the best, Alan Ross. It's called Creation and Blessing. This is one of the better commentaries on uh, Genesis. Uh, and it's, it's pretty reasonable. I mean, he... he uh, he deals with all the technical issues, but it's, it's pretty readable and so forth. So I don't think you'll have trouble with it if you stay with it. Uh, now, he does affirm, which, which I don't. We'll talk a little bit more about the gap between verse 1 and 2. He would be one that would be more open to that. Uh, but that aside, still one of the better commentaries. Probably the best commentary on the book of Genesis. I think most of you are going to find a little difficult. The one out of the Word Biblical Commentary series. We've got some of those in our church library. Most people, they're highly technical, and most people find the format of the Word Biblical series kind of difficult to deal with. But if you're a brave soul and, and want to wade through that, you may want to get the one out of the Word Biblical Commentary series. Uh, this is generally a very unbalanced series. Some of them are great. Some of them are not so great. The NIV Application Commentary. The one on Genesis by John Walton. Uh, excellent. One of the better commentaries uh, on Genesis. Um, and then, of course, our Southern Baptist Convention that uh, published a, a do-over, a remake of the Broadman commentary series that was done back in the 60s, I guess. The New American commentary series, a lot of our Southern Baptist scholars. The one by Kenneth Matthews, 1T in Matthews, Kenneth Matthews. This is the first volume in that. This is an outstanding commentary. So again, uh, for those who want to study the book of Genesis maybe a little bit more in depth than just your typical Sunday school type material, I would, uh, I would highly recommend those. Still going over a lot of introductory material tonight, so I'll, I'll stay with my notes a little bit more tonight maybe than, than I typically would. Uh, but I do want to ask you to go ahead and find the opening chapter of the book of Genesis. 
and I've titled tonight God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Of course, if you're familiar with that phrase, you know where it comes from. It comes from the Apostles' Creed. So that's our message title tonight. And so uh, we'll be beginning in chapter 1, verse 1. Let's read together. Scripture says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was, a, was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together, he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth, and it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds and trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness and God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas And let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds. Livestock and creeping things and beasts of the fields according to their kinds. And it was so. God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And the livestock according to their kinds. And everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. 
So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I've given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. If you have the ESV study Bible... Notice your, your notes at the bottom of the page, that first paragraph. I just want to begin by reading that paragraph that is the shaded portion. It says, Primeval History. The first 11 chapters of Genesis differ from those that follow. Chapters 12 to 50 focus on one main family line in considerable detail, whereas chapters 1 to 11 could be described as a survey of the world before Abraham. These opening chapters differ not only in their subject matter from chapter 12 onward, but also because there are no real parallels to the patriarchal stories in other literatures. In contrast to the patriarchal stories, however, other ancient non-biblical stories do exist recounting stories about both creation and the flood. The existence of such stories, however, does not in any way challenge the authority of the inspiration of Genesis. In fact, the non-biblical stories stand in sharp contrast to the biblical account and thus help readers appreciate the unique nature and character of the biblical accounts of creation and the flood. In other ancient literary traditions... Creation is a great struggle often involving conflict between the gods. The flood was sent because the gods could not stand the noise made by human beings and yet they could not control it. Through these stories, the people of the ancient world learned their traditions about the gods they worshipped and the way of life that people should follow. Babylonian versions of creation and flood stories were designed to show that Babylon was the center of the religious universe and that its civilization was the highest achieved by mankind. Reading Genesis, readers can see that it is designed to refute these delusions. There's only one God whose word is almighty. He has only to speak and the world comes into being. The sun and moon are not gods in their own right, but are created by the one God. 
This God does not need feeding by man, as the Babylonians believed they did by offering sacrifices. But he instead supplies man with food. It is human sin, not divine annoyance, that prompts the flood. Far from Babylon's tower, Babel, reaching heaven, it became a reminder that human pride could neither reach nor manipulate God. These principles, which emerge so clearly in Genesis 1 through 11, are truths that run through the rest of Scripture. The unity of God is fundamental to biblical theology as is his almighty power, his care for mankind, and his judgment on sin. It may not always be obvious how these chapters relate to geology and archaeology, but their theological message is very clear. Read in their intended sense, they provide the fundamental presuppositions of the rest of Scripture. These chapters should act as eyeglasses so that readers focus on the points their author is making and go on to read the rest of the Bible in light of them. Now the word Genesis came into English by way of Latin from the Greek. The word has a range of meanings. It means origins. It means beginning. It can also mean begetting. The Hebrew word is Bereshith, and it's translated in Genesis 1-1 in the beginning. Now, we know that Genesis is a book of origins. It, it begins the narrative of the entire redemptive story in the Bible, and it helps make sense out of everything that follows. But let's think about origins. It tells about God creating the earth and the universe, the seas, the land, the sky, the plants, the animals, the fish, the birds, as well as the man and the woman. It establishes the pattern for working six days and resting a seventh. It tells about the origins of marriage and family life and of sin coming into the whole created order and the ugly effects of sin. It also tells us about God's promise of the seed of the woman who would destroy the work of Satan, which is, of course, the first promise of the Messiah in the Scripture. By the way, that's found in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. It also tells of the dispersion of the nations and of God choosing one man and his wife who would be the ancestors of God's new people through whom the Messiah would come. Now, folks, while Genesis tells us of God's creation of all that is, it would be a mistake to try to take Genesis 1 and 2 as an extensive science textbook explaining every single question that we have. That's not even the intent of this narrative. Not even the intent. It simply doesn't do this. Now, of course, it doesn't contradict science, true science, but it, the Bible is not meant to be a science textbook. Now, the New Testament and Jesus himself both assume and proclaim that Moses 
was the author of Genesis. Not just Genesis, but the author of the Pentateuch. What's the Pentateuch? First five books of the Bible. And Jesus and the apostles affirm that Moses was the author. Jesus and the apostles will quote from various sections of the first five books of the Bible. And, and they'll say something like, and as Moses said. An example of that, Jesus said in John 7.22, Moses gave you circumcision. And where does circumcision show up? Genesis 17. We know that, that Moses also gleaned from some already existing oral and written sources at points. It also appears that at, at some later point or points, there were some place names that were updated. And, and we have things like the list of kings that was added after the monarchy began. The monarchy that started in Israel with the time of, of Saul. Now, if we place Moses somewhere within the 15th century before Christ, that would be an acceptable dating of the book of Genesis. Now, the literary structure of Genesis is marked by a series of headings that shape the overall account. After the prologue, which is Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3, Genesis is divided into ten parts marked out by a formula, and that formula would be, these are the generations of. And each time that heading is followed by a genealogy of those descended from the person named or by stories involving those persons. Now, in the book of Genesis, we see both the transcendence of God as well as the eminence of God. What's the transcendence of God? What's that referred to? He's way above us. He's above his creation. He's, he's other than us. He's, he and his creation, you know, some people try to say the, they hug a tree. That's God and the grass is God. No, no they're not. He's above his creation and separate from it. And at the same time, he's imminent. What, what does the opening chapters of Genesis, what do those chapters say? That God was walking with Adam and Eve in the garden in the cool of the day. So he's transcendent and he's imminent. He's connected to the world that he made and to the people that he made. And all through the book of Genesis we see God's providence over all things. God is holy and God is sovereign. God is watching over the creation that he's made. He's providential in all things. Things don't happen by accident. And the world is not spinning out of control. Dr. Alan Ross writes, even a casual reading of the book of Genesis reveals the prominence of the theme of blessing. 
He says the entire book turns on this motif and it's antithetical motif, that of cursing, blessing and cursing. Kenneth Matthews writes, it presents the literary and theological underpinning of the whole canonical scriptures. He goes on to say the first verse declares the metaphysical assumption that is a present transcendent creator God that acts as the philosophical cornerstone of the entire biblical revelation just as we have no gospel without the cross We would have no salvation story without the sacred events of Moses' first book. Now, in the most broad sense, you can can divide the book of Genesis into, into two main sections. Genesis chapters 1 through 11 would be primeval history. And Genesis 12 to 50 would be patriarchal history because we're going to hear about the patriarchs Abraham and Isaac and and Jacob and so forth so primeval history and patriarchal history Matthews goes on to write, he says, Israel's faith in God is creator, not just redeemer provided an all-embracing framework as the fundamental, all-underlying premise for any talk about God, the world, Israel, and the individual. He says, our Christian proclamation of hope has antecedents in the theological soil of three divine programmatic expectations expectations first heard in Genesis. Number one, God will bless the human family with procreation and dominion. Number two, he will achieve victory over mankind's enemy. And number three, he will bring about both through the offspring of Abraham, namely the one man, Jesus Christ. Now folks, it would be it would be impossible to overstate the importance of the book of Genesis. It would be impossible to overstate it. In fact, what is said about God, human nature, the world, salvation history, and the library of the other 65 books of the Bible is already found in microcosm in the book of Genesis. And also we need to understand something. The Bible is not a cut and paste account of different accounts that are just put together arbitrarily without any rhyme or reason. The Bible tells one cohesive story of creation, fall, redemption, and future glorification. A story that begins in Genesis And concludes in Revelation. The Bible begins in a garden. And how does it end? It ends in a garden. A garden remade and restored. Without sin or Satan ever again. Now structurally Genesis 1.1 through 2.4. Consist of an introduction and seven paragraphs. 
The introduction identifies the creator and creation, Genesis 1, 1 and 2. And then six paragraphs are carved up according to six days of creation. And then the final paragraph regards the climatic seventh day, the day of consecration. And the presentation of each one of these creation days follows the same pattern. Sometimes the wording is changed up a little bit. Sometimes the order. But the same basic pattern in each of these days. God said. And then God gave the command, let it be. And then thirdly, there was the fact of the creation. And then next there was God's evaluation. He saw it and saw that it was good. And then fifthly, the boundaries of the created element. And sixth, the naming. The naming of that day. Now, look at verse 1. In the beginning, God, right away... And and again, folks, bear with me. In, In future lessons, we'll get into more of the text. I'm going over a lot of introductory matters tonight. But look at the first first words here in the beginning God so right away what does the opening verse of the book of Genesis present us with it presents us with the creator he's the main character of the book in fact he's the main character of the Bible as a whole God is the grammatical subject of the first sentence. God said. God said is the recurring element in in this section of the book of Genesis. Again, showing that God is the main character and He is the one doing the action. And so what's that tell us? The creative, the creation account is what? Theocentric. It's God-centered. It's not centered on the creation itself. It's not centered on man or any of the animals. All of these things are in the account. But God is the center of the account. And so the creation account right away is intended to bring the focus to God. God is the only one who is worthy of our worship and our praise and our devotion and our service. And what we see also is that God is to be magnified. God is magnified through the created order. The created order points to him. What's the psalmist say? The heavens declare what? The glory of God. Creation points to a creator. Kenneth Matthews says that the passage in Genesis 1 is doxological as well as didactic. What's didactic mean? Teaching, instructional. It's doxological as well as didactic. Hymnic as well as history. 
I like that. I like that. Now, when it says in the beginning, we certainly know that this is not the beginning of God because He was already there creating. In fact, God is eternal. There's never been a time that He was not. What's being referred to here is the beginning of creation as we know it. The beginning of the universe, the beginning of the heavenly bodies and the earth and the seas and, and the vegetation and the animals and the beginning of the man and the woman. That's what beginning here refers to. Now the, the name for God that is used here, does anybody know? It's Elohim. Elohim, it's plural in form, the plural of majesty. And as we can affirm from the rest of the Bible, reading back into the term from a, from a Christian perspective, the plural of majesty would refer to who? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And yet, while the plural of majesty is used with his name... The verb for he created is singular. In other words, while the plural is used of God's name, it is clear that we are not talking about multiple gods. One God. Now the Hebrew word for created is bara. And bara in the Old Testament always has God as the subject. Man can make, but a different word is used. It's only God who creates bara. The word bara stresses God's sovereignty and God's power. Now, it doesn't always refer to creation ex nihilo, out of nothing. But nevertheless, it does always have God as its subject. Now, right away in Genesis 1-1, we see a far different worldview than our children are taught in the school system, Right? What we are told here without apology is that everything in creation was the direct result, the direct creation of a sovereign God. The world didn't just happen. It didn't just evolve out of a single organism or anything else for that matter. It is the very creation of a holy and majestic God. And I want you to notice something here. The, the Bible doesn't argue that point. It doesn't argue the point of God creating everything. It simply proclaims it as a fact. If you deny that, you're denying the very opening premise of the Holy Scripture. To deny what the Scripture says here and yet confess Christ would be a huge problem at the very foundation of your faith. Now, I realize this means you've got an ultimate choice to make, don't you? 
Either you accept by faith God's word or you don't. Now, as we pointed out two weeks ago, I I do not believe you can argue for theistic evolution. Which is the thought that God orchestrated and used the processes of evolution to bring everything into being over a long period of time. That is not what Genesis 1 and 2 are are saying. If you hold a theistic evolution, then you're going to have to appeal to some source other than the Bible. Now, while it's true that we're not told every detail here of how God did it, we are certainly being told, or, or we, we can surmise, we're, that, that, that it was not evolution. Probably if you ask Moses, he'd say, Eva, what? What's that? You know. But we know that Whatever's being said here, again, we're not told all the details, but what we do know is that evolution is not what's being taught. Not even theistic evolution. Now, for one thing, as I mentioned two weeks ago, the Hebrew word for day, yom, it never means anything other than a literal 24-hour day when there is a number in front of it. The first day, the second day, the third. When the number comes in front of Yom, it never means anything other than a day the way we understand day, a literal 24-hour period. Now, it is true that other places uh, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, Yom, when it doesn't have the number in front of it, can mean something broader. The day of the judges. The day of the judge obviously being a period of time. So it can, it can mean an elongated period of time when it doesn't carry the number with it. But again, when it carries the number with it, it always refers to a literal 24-hour day. Now let's pause for a minute to understand the, the theological significance of these opening verses of Genesis. I want you to remember these would have been words first heard and read by who? By the Hebrews. Right? With Moses writing these words, these are words that the Hebrews needed to know. They are living in the midst of other peoples, many of whom were polytheistic. And in the minds of these polytheistic people, your God could only protect you within the boundaries of your country. Remember Jonah? Jonah thought he could could pay the fare and get on the ship and and leave the area and get away from God. And what did he find out? You can't get away from God. But the polytheistic peoples of Moses' day believed that, that their gods were just over their country. 
And so what Israel is being told here is that her God is the only God. And He is the true and the living God. And He's the maker of the heavens and the earth. He's sovereign over everything. His power is not limited. The boundaries of the nations mean nothing to Him. He's not limited by the boundaries of different nations. And and he's the one, Israel's God is the one who who made it all, made everything. And, And so he is more than sufficient for his people to be able to look to. He's more than able. Israel doesn't need to fear the other gods of the nations. Israel need not question whether God can supply her needs. Again, he's the maker of the heavens and the earth. All that is rightfully belongs to him. I would say the same to us today. Not only is it Israel that needed to know that, we need to know that. We need not worry about God's sufficiency. We don't have to worry about God's ability to take care of us. God is more than able. Now, likewise, Israel should not worship anything in creation. We're not to worship the creation. We are to worship the Creator. The creation account also says volumes about how God accomplishes His work. How does He accomplish His work? He does so through His powerful Word. He says it and it's done. Therefore, the God who's going to give them His commandments and His law is the same God who made everything by His Word. And what's that mean? You better not take His Word lightly. Likewise, His promises are not to be taken lightly. If God created the heavens and the earth by His Word, then then God can certainly keep His promises. If God said it, it is done. Now, when we move into verse 2, we see that the earth, it, it says the earth was without form and void. It was tohu wa bohu. That's your memorization for next week, okay? Tohu wa bohu. The Hebrew for formless and void. Now, I agree here with Dr. James Allman, an Old Testament professor out of Dallas Theological Seminary. He says what we have in verse 1, verse 2, and verse 3 is the typical Hebrew pattern. You have an overall topic sentence like we have in verse 1, and then you have a sentence that simply tells about the condition of things. In other words, verse 2 is not the result of something sinister happening. It's simply the opening statement of the initial 
condition of things. And then verse 3 actually begins the creation account. Now, if you don't know what I'm talking about, let me put it another way. Some have tried to say between verse 1 and verse 2, something sinister happened. You have God making the heavens and the earth, and the next thing we read in verse 2, it was formless and void. So some say something happened. And what do they say happened? They say that's where you have the fall of Satan. Satan fell to the earth and messed things up so that what you have beginning in verse 3 is the beginning of a second creation account. So a first creation account, verse 1, a second and totally different creation account beginning in verse 3. I do not accept that. But let me say, I know that we have a few in the church who do. Okay? And and I'm not going to argue with you about that. I simply don't believe that's what's being communicated. I don't believe that's what's being taught. That goes beyond what the text actually says. I also don't believe the gap theory that goes along with this. They say that between verses 1 and 2, you have possibly millions and millions of years, maybe even billions of years, and that's where you have the dinosaurs and the cavemen and so forth. First of all, this is not what the text says, and it's not the natural reading of the text. But beyond that, if, if there was this gap of millions and millions of years between verse 2 and 3, and this is where the cavemen died and all that blood, you would have bloodshed and death and destruction happening before the fall. The fall happened in Genesis 3. And so I cannot accept that theologically... Uh, It was that way because then you would be rejecting Romans chapter 5. Because what's Paul say in Romans chapter 5? That bloodshed and sin and death and all that came as a result of one man, Adam. Now, you say, where'd the gap theory come from? Well, it was popularized a couple hundred years ago. Again, he wasn't the first one, but it was popularized by by a very good minister, a faithful minister, Thomas Chalmers, a Scottish minister and and, and theologian who kind of repopularized the gap theory. And he meant well. 
He was trying, evidently, supposedly, as the story goes, he was trying to make some concessions with evolutionists and and give Christians an avenue whereby they could accept an old earth along with evolutionists and they could accept even billions of years and then at the same time they could accept the biblical account of Adam and Eve being only a thousand years. But again, as I've already pointed out, I think the gap theory creates a lot more problems than it solves. And it goes beyond what the text is saying. Now still, I have heard some say, even even a church member here years ago say, if you turn to Isaiah 45 verse 18... It plainly says that God did not create the earth to be empty. And so they'll say, uh, they'll say, see there, something sinister must have happened because God didn't create the world to be empty and void. But folks, that's pushing beyond what Isaiah 45, 18 is saying. I would say, of course God did not create the earth to be empty and void. That's precisely why the creation account doesn't stop with verse 2. The creation account picks up with verse 3 about what God started doing to fill it. If the creation account stopped at verse 2, then you might have a point. But it doesn't stop at verse 2. Plus, if chapter 1, verse 1 represented one creation, and then chapter 1, verse 2 and following represented a second and separate creation, a a do-over, if you will, then why would the first creation account not also have wording like, And God saw what he had made, and behold, it was good. That's what you would expect. And so again, as Dr. James Allman out of Dallas says, what we have here is nothing more than typical Hebrew narrative where you have an opening topic sentence that gives the big picture summary Then you have an opening statement showing the initial condition of things. And then the next line begins to advance the narrative along. I think that's what we have going on here. Now let me say just one or two more things about this chapter before closing. According to evolution... We have everything, everything that is coming from one single organism. Now to help you picture this in your mind, let me give you an image in your mind. And and it's not a perfect image, but, but I hope it'll at least help you to see what I'm getting at. Picture an acorn in the dirt. An acorn in the dirt. And it blossoms, it takes root. 
And coming up out of that acorn, you have a tree. Lots of branches. In one branch, you have all the fish. Another branch, all the birds. Another branch, all the mammals. Every single organism, things come up. And everything that is, if you could look reverse at that, at all those different branches and all the, all the things we find in creation go back to that one organism. Is that what the text says? No. What does Genesis 1 repeatedly say throughout the whole account? After their kind. Thank you. After their kind. In other words, there is not a common life form that everything evolves from that one thing. God made the plants different from one one another. He made the trees different. He made the animals different. The fish, the birds, everything. You cannot help but escape the notion that what God is doing is getting everything ready for the man and the woman to be ready to live on an earth that God has prepared for them and they are to have dominion over that earth. God is lovingly, carefully, in a systematic, organized way creating different things after their kind. So that they can reproduce after their kind. And the man and the woman are going to have a perfect environment to come into. The garden was to be a temple. In fact, the first temple. Adam and Eve are to expand the garden in in a sense to have dominion over the entire earth. The whole earth is to be a temple of the Lord with Adam essentially acting as the first priest. Through the stewardship that Adam and Eve are given, the whole earth is to be filled with the glory of God. Of the Lord. Now, what's some lessons from that? We see lesson number one God is the creator of all that is. The universe didn't just happen as a result of some explosion or any other kind of natural phenomenon, it is the product of a holy and a sovereign God. Lesson number two, God created all that is from His powerful Word. Lesson three, God is a good God and consequently all that He makes and all that He does is good. Lesson number four, God is a God of order. God loves order 
and beauty and goodness. Fifth, all life forms do not come from a single organism. And then lastly, God put within all life forms the ability to reproduce after their kind. Now folks, I'm not done with Genesis chapter 1, okay? We're just getting started. I kind of wanted to give you an overview. Somebody over here... Sure. There's no gap. Exactly. Good point. What was the reference again? Was Mark 10 what? Mark 10, 6. That in the beginning, not after he had created and then something sinister happened and then he came along and did a second creation, but in the beginning, God made Adam and Eve. Okay. You know, we see today what's being attacked systematically. The Word of God is attacked, like in Genesis 3. Did God really say? So, the Word of God attacked. Creation attacked. Marriage attacked. Just look what's going on in, in, in society. A systematic attack on each element that the Bible tells us about who's that the work of the enemy we believe God's word or we don't but I don't think when you read the creation account there's any room to straddle the fence and say oh I believe in evolution but you know what I also believe in God and God did it. No. Those accounts don't mix.